And I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, and as you're doing that, allow me to say uh, good morning to you, and uh, thank you for the privilege and the, the invitation from your pastor in your session to bring the word this morning. It is indeed a privilege to be with you, not just because I have that undeserved and inestimable privilege of opening up the scriptures to God's people, but because of the esteem in which I hold Dr. Payne and uh, the pastoral leadership that you have in this congregation. Uh, you are no doubt aware that he is not only a faithful minister to you, but is a faithful leader in the church at large. And that's something for which I'd like to thank you as a congregation. When a pastor has the kind of scope of ministry that Dr. Payne does, that's a gift from the congregation of the rest of the church. And I want you to know that your investment in allowing him to do what he does and supporting him in doing what he does is providing great leadership at a critical moment to the church at large. And so it's a privilege to be with you as uh, you serve and support Christ's cause. And that's what we look at this morning. We're going to look at Christ's cause this morning and then again this evening, this morning from Romans chapter 10. So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 10 as I read in our hearing the Word of God from Romans 10, verses 1 to 17. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 17, and I'd invite you to listen because this is the very Word of God. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? But they've not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Join me in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, uh, we say amen. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And oh, Lord Jesus Christ, would you now speak by your spirit, through your word, as it's stewarded by your servant to your people. Lord, we pray that you would reach places in our heart that we cannot reach. 
that you would illumine our minds in ways that we could not understand on our own. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would not only inform us, but you would transform us through the preaching of your word. We pray, our Lord, that your will for your people would be executed as your word is preached. And we ask it for the glory of God in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Samuel Miller was one of the founders of the Presbyterian movement in the United States. 1835, Samuel Miller delivered an address entitled, The Earth Filled with the Glory of the Lord. And in it, he expressed a great vision for the advance of Christ's cause in the world. Here's what Samuel Miller said. In this work of evangelizing the world, he said this, Our plans and efforts for promoting this object ought to be large, liberal, liberal and ever-expanding. When we direct our attention, said Miller, to the spread of the gospel, our views, our prayers, our efforts are all too stinted and narrow. We scarcely ever lift our eyes to the real grandeur and claims of the enterprise in which we profess to be engaged. We are too apt, he said, to be satisfied with small and occasional contributions of service to this, the greatest of all causes, instead of devoting to it hearts truly enlarged, instead of desiring great things, instead of expecting great things, praying for great things, and nurturing in our hearts and spirits that holy elevation of sentiment and affection which embraces in its desires and prayers the entire kingdom of God. That is old school Presbyterianism in the 19th century. Romans chapter 10 is one of the great cause-shaping passages of Scripture where that vision is made compellingly clear. In Romans 10, Christ's authorized spokesman opens up his heart for Christ's mission, his confidence in Christ's message, and his commitment to Christ's method. And the reality revealed in this passage for a church that desires to be biblical, apostolic, and reformed in its pattern of ministry is this. Here's the reality. A heart compelled by Christ's mission will have confidence in Christ's message and be committed to Christ's method. Let me give you that once more. A heart compelled by Christ's mission will have confidence in Christ's message and be committed to Christ's method. Your Bible's open, verse 1, shows us a heart that is compelled by Christ's mission. Notice what he says. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. See, Christ's Spirit-inspired spokesman is showing us what moves him in the ministry. He's disclosing his heart to the Romans, and he says his heart is for the salvation of lost people. Some time ago, a friend of mine returned from a professional trip to India. He wasn't there on ministry or on a mission, but he saw as he was there and saw those, uh, some of those 1.3 billion people, he saw the religious system that they were imprisoned in, and he's not given to great shows of the emotion, but when he came back, he called me and with great burden on his heart, and he said, John, they're all going to hell. I was struck by how little I hear that expression anymore. As we look at our nation, we look at our neighbors, does that press itself on our heart anymore, their eternal state? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul saw, saw. That's what he felt when he wrote to the church in Rome. 
And so this is this one-line Spirit-inspired testimony. And it actually becomes more compelling when you consider where this statement actually comes in the book of Romans. It's the first thing he says after Romans 9. You say, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. We could tell that. Romans 9 leads to Romans chapter 10. Why is that so compelling? Because Romans chapter 9 is where the apostle extols the glory of God in his sovereign determination of who will receive mercy and who will be vessels of wrath. Romans chapter 9 is where he extols the glorious doctrine of election. And so it's striking that the first thing that comes from his pen and from his heart in chapter 10 is not, therefore, because God is sovereign, I'm not really affected by whether people are lost or saved or not. I recall participating in an interview for a man who was being credentialed for the ministry, and he was gifted, head and shoulders above anyone who was doing the interview. In theology, he took us to school. It was a clinic. And then one of the interviewers asked the man to tell us about an evangelistic ministry that he had said he was involved in. And the interviewer said to him, have you seen any fruit? The man's face suddenly became intentionally apathetic. And with a tone of real condescension, he said, no fruit, no fruit. And he looked as though, why should that bother me? See, what he had done is he'd taken that glorious biblical truth that all fruit is God's sovereign prerogative, that doctrine of election, and he took it to mean he could be apathetic about the salvation of souls that he claimed to be evangelizing. Rather than being moved and committed from the heart to bring in a harvest of souls for the glory of God. John Murray, in one of the most definitive commentaries in the book of Romans, comments on this verse. Listen to what Professor Murray says. He says, here we have a lesson of profound import. Our attitude to men is not to be governed by God's secret counsel concerning them. It is this lesson and the distinction involved that are so eloquently inscribed on the apostle's passion for the salvation of his kinsmen. We violate the order of human thought and trespass the boundary between God's prerogative and man's when the truth of God's sovereign counsel constrains despair or abandonment of concern for the eternal interests of men. Well, maybe you're just making too much of this one verse. Well, it's not only here that the apostle does it. He actually does it before chapter, the beginning of chapter 9. He says this at the beginning of chapter 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And it's not just his kinsmen according to the flesh. It's the Gentiles as well. He begins, he actually bookends the book of Romans with this passion for mission and ministry to the lost. In Romans chapter 1, he says that I have often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as amongst the rest of the Gentiles. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. That's chapter 1. Chapter 15, he summarizes his ministry this way, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified to the Holy Spirit. Here's what I want you to see this morning. The Holy Spirit gives us a window into the heart of the servant who spoke for Jesus, and his heart was compelled by Christ's mission to save an innumerable multitude from every people, tribe, 
tongue, and nation who would produce a harvest of praise for all eternity to the glory of God. And that heart is actually reflected in our Reformed forefathers. I'll just pick one. Another professor at Old Princeton in the 19th century, Archibald Alexander, said this, If the Christian church felt her obligation to her Lord and Redeemer as she ought, the whole body would be like a great missionary society whose chief object was to spread the gospel over the whole world. We could actually go on multiplying expressions from John Calvin, Thomas Boston, and others with that kind of a heart. The point is that a biblical, apostolic, and reformed church will have a heart that is compelled by Christ's mission. Second, I'd like you to notice that a heart for Christ's mission is grounded in confidence in Christ's message. A heart for Christ's mission is grounded in confidence in Christ's message. You know as well as anyone that the history of the church is littered with examples of preachers and churches who use concern for mission as an excuse to change the gospel message. Recall sitting across the table from an old friend who was rapidly departing from biblical truth. And as I was seeking to try to persuade him to come back, he leaned in and he intoned to me, you see, my concern is missional. Meaning, the straight form of the biblical message just doesn't get the work done in a contemporary context. And I had to respond to him, my concern's missional too, and if you don't have a biblical message, you don't have a biblical mission. Verses 2 to 13, the apostle gives us a description and a defense of the message that Jesus gave him to accomplish the mission he commissioned him for. Now, we're just going to survey it this morning. It is a complex, condensed, razor-sharp argument that defends his gospel message is growing right out of the Old Testament scriptures. So let me give you the tweetable version of what happens in verses 2 to, uh, two, 2 to 13. Here's what it does. Here's the message. Hear this. If you hear nothing else, acquittal of guilt and acceptance with God is based not on your work of righteousness, but on Christ alone received by faith alone. It's not about your religious background. It's not about your moral performance. It's not about your social status. It's not about your ethnic roots. It's not where you're from. It's not what you've done or who, you pe who your people are. Acquittal of guilt and acceptance with God is based not on your work at righteousness, but on Christ alone received by faith alone because Christ revealed in the scriptures is God's righteousness for everyone who believes. That's what he says in verses 2 to 13. If you look at verses 2 to 4, the people on his heart are his kinsmen, disobediently unrighteous because, notice what they're doing, they are trusting their own self-made righteousness rather than the righteousness that God alone gives. I quote him a lot, so I'll go back to him. Professor John Murray once wrote this. He said that the greatest, the greatest problem is not, the greatest obstacle to the gospel is not human unrighteousness. It's human righteousness. The greatest obstacle to the gospel is not human unrighteousness. It's the human righteousness we fashion for ourselves. You see, there is a human man-made righteousness, and there is the righteousness of God. 
the righteousness that God gives, the righteousness that reveals the character of God, the, the righteousness that's given in the Son of God. And that's the only righteousness that gets us acquitted of our guilt. It's the only righteousness that gets us accepted before God. But here's our problem. We are addicted to trying to fashion our own works of righteousness that God must accept us on. We're zealous to stand on our own performance. Something that God should find acceptable. And that can be true if you're a religious person. It's also true if you're a secular person. If you're a religious person, it looks like trusting in your own zeal for the religious code and religious conduct. I trust my, my diligence at keeping the religious routines and the moral codes, and I count on that to put God in my debt and accept me because I've done what he said I was supposed to do. You know, it's true of secular people as well. Post-everything people. Righteousness is conforming to the new social orthodoxy. Because I am on the right side of history, because I'm enlightened and engaged in the right social causes, that's just another form of self-righteousness. If there's a God, he must be on my side because I've got the right social creed placarded on my lawn. It's a form of religion. It's a form of righteousness. And at best, it is sub-gospel, if not another gospel. And the point of verses 2 to 4 is it doesn't matter how zealous you are in your man-made code of righteousness, whether it's religious or whether it is secular. If it's a man-made code of righteousness, you're ignorant of God's righteousness, and in fact, you are rebellious to it. Your efforts at your own righteousness, please hear me, no matter how zealous you are, no matter how meticulous you are, no matter how effective you are, your, your efforts at your own righteousness cannot and do not establish your righteousness before God. The righteousness of God that leads to salvation is Jesus Christ's righteousness imputed to us by grace alone, through faith alone, by God alone. So verse 4, everyone who believes Christ is the end of attempts at salvation based on the law. Christ is where the believer puts their only trust. Faith says, no more trusting my own efforts and my own merits. Righteousness is Christ alone. Well, then in verses 5 to 8, he shows us that despite the objections from his kinsmen, this is not a novel or new message. In fact, it's the biblical message. It goes right out of the Old Testament scriptures. Dig in with me here just for a second. He references two passages in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18.5, Deuteronomy 30.12-14, to demonstrate that even Moses pointed to the righteousness of God that comes through faith. And the apostles' point in quoting those Old Testament passages is they speak of Christ and the message of faith that we proclaim. What we're telling you about Jesus is what Moses pointed you to. Here's what he says, verses 5-8. to eight. Just look at it. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But... The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul's point is this, Christ, whom we preach, whom we proclaim, is the revelation of the righteousness of God that even Moses pointed to. The message is Christ, 
revealed in the scriptures is God's righteousness. And my friends, that is glorious good news. Because all a sinner has to do, all a sinner has to do, is respond to the gift of grace through faith by believing in him. Do you notice what he says? Here's the eternity altering point, verses 9 to 13. Look at verse Look at it. He quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He quotes Joel 2, 32. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the glorious good news of the gospel we proclaim. God, almighty, holy, 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 righteous, and entirely just. God counts us righteous, justified, and saves us if we simply believe. And Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Maybe you say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my background. You don't know who my people are. You don't know where I'm from. Now, there have got to be spiritual hurdles for me to jump over. There have to be sacrificial hoops for me to crawl through. There has to be a penance of some kind to pay, some kind of hocus-pocus for me to perform. No. Scripture says, Believe in Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, and God will give you Jesus' righteousness. How do you put an end to the folly and futility of trying to do enough righteous things to earn God's acceptance? How do you put an end to that? Here's the answer. Believe in Jesus Christ from your heart. Confess Him with your mouth. That's the message that you can have confidence in for your salvation. That's the message you can have confidence in for the salvation of the people who are on your heart, your neighbors, your nations, your children, your grandchildren. That's the message. It's the power of God to salvation. So if that's the message, how do we get the message out? We've seen the mission. We've seen confidence in Christ's message now it gets distributed through Christ's method. A heart compelled on Christ's mission and confident in Christ's message asks the how question. See, that's what Paul does in verses 14 to 17. Would you just look at it with me? Verse 14 to 17. So I'm a professor of pastoral theology. It used to be called practical theology. Here's Paul now goes practical. How? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Down to verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Do you see the logic? Do you see the logic of the verses? How are they to call on him in whom they do not believe? If all you've got to do is believe, how are they to call on him? And how are they to believe in him if they've never heard? And how are on him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear if someone doesn't preach? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? See, sometimes when people in churches become deeply committed to the unchanging gospel message, one of the things that can happen is they stop asking the how question possible for us to descend into an exclusively conserve and defend mode and we stop asking how do we get this good news out to more and more people sometimes when people in churches become compelled by Christ's mission they devise all sorts of silly ends justifies the ends methods in the name of getting more people in the door and more people in the seats here 
the mission-hearted apostle asks the how question and answers it with the means and the method that God has ordained to call all those whom he has chosen, all those for whom Christ died, the means and the method he has ordained to call his people home in his son. Here's the method. Let me give it to you. Christ sends a preacher. The preacher preaches Christ. The people hear Christ. The people believe Christ. They call on Christ, and everyone who calls is saved. That's the method. If that little sequence of questions teaches us anything, my friends, it teaches us about the priority of preaching, and it teaches about the priority of sending preachers in the cause of Christ. Because the preaching of the gospel, hang on to your seat, Preaching of the gospel is the way Christ himself accomplishes his mission in his people and for his people. Maybe as you were listening and following through, you noticed that when we read through those verses, I skipped the little of in the middle of verse 14. You thought, well, the guest preacher maybe needs new glasses. He's fallen asleep on his own sermon at some point, but we'll just be polite and we'll overlook it. It's actually quite deliberate. Because the option that is given to you in the footnote of the ESV is a better translation. This one. How are they to believe in him, not of whom they have never heard? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Here's what the Apostle Paul knows. The Apostle Paul knows it's actually him. It's actually Christ. They hear and him. They believe when he is preached from the Scriptures. So in verse 17, he says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And that doesn't just mean the word about Christ, though it is the word about Christ. It means the word of Christ. It's Christ's word that comes through the preachers that Christ sends who faithfully preach his message. Christ preaches still. You know how Jesus executed his earthly mission the Father sent him to accomplish? Luke chapter 4, his sermon in his home synagogue in Nazareth. He stood up and he picked up Isaiah 61 and he said this. Please listen to the methodology. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim, preach, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, preach, liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he told his disciples as they wanted to drag him off into a bunch of other things, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was sent as the preacher to preach. And after he was raised from the dead, that's how he told his disciples to extend his mission. Before he was exalted to the Father's right hand, he gave them this mission and this method. Luke 24, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. You are witnesses of these things. See, Jesus' method in his earthly ministry was to preach, and the risen Jesus' mandate to his disciples was to preach as they witnessed to him. So Paul knew that when those Christ sent preached, the ascended Christ preached. He's got this remarkable statement, Acts chapter 26. I'll let you, I'll let you read it for yourself later on. Uh, Paul is making his defense before King Agrippa, and he says this, Acts 26, verse 23, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being, listen, being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and the Gentiles. Who proclaimed? Christ. When did he do it? After he was raised from the dead. How does the risen Christ proclaim light to our people and the Gentiles? Through the preachers he sends. 
That's why he said in Ephesians chapter 2, for he himself is our peace who's made us both one and has broken down his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off, Gentiles. How does Jesus preach peace to Gentiles who are far off when he never left Palestine? Through the preachers that he sends. He, the ascended Christ, came and preached to those who were far off. Thomas Goodwin thought to picture this for us when he was commenting on Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. Here's what Goodwin said. Because he is with us ministers in delivering the gospel to the end of the world, yea, Jesus Christ has his pulpit in heaven to this day. Therefore it said, refuse not him who speaks from heaven. Here's the point. This is why the faithful preaching of the word has the power to reach into the darkness and raise the dead. This is why the faithful preaching of the word has the power to sanctify saints. Because it's Christ, by his spirit, through his scripture, stewarded by his servant who actually speaks. No wonder Paul said, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Christ sends the preacher, the preacher preaches Christ, the people hear Christ, the people believe Christ, they call on Christ, everyone who calls on the name of Christ is saved. That's the method. That leads me to three very brief points of application, then I'm done. Number one, how do you respond to that kind of revelation? Number one, pray for your pastors as preachers and provide them the time and resources to be preachers and listen well to the word preached. You know how Christ is going to advance his kingdom in your life and his kingdom through your life? Through the word preached. As you hear the word preached, as you believe the word preached, as you respond to the word preached, as you obey the word preached. And so you've got to pray for your preachers as you do and support your preachers as you do. And preachers, pastors have to prioritize preaching in their, in their ministries. It is the primary stewardship for which Christ has set pastors apart. If this passage teaches us anything, it's to reform our expectations and our investment in the preaching of the word. That's the method, the preaching of the gospel that Christ is going to use to affect his mission. Here's the second application. Churches in the name of Jesus must intentionalize sending preachers. John Calvin, when the Lord was using him to help lead the Reformation movement in Europe, wrote to the churches of France, knowing that they needed ministers, wrote to the churches in France, and he called them to send their young men to Geneva to be trained, and he put it this way, send us your wood, and we'll send you back arrows. Because he saw the company of preachers as a sacred army. My friends, our nation, our neighbors need a new generation of the sacred army. We need a whole army of Christ-centered, spirit-filled, mission-hearted, gospel preachers. So, seminaries like the one that I work at, we get to train them, but you have to send them. It's churches that send their sons. Churches that send their grandsons to become the arrows that Christ can fire into the heart of darkness to save sinners 
and sanctify saints through the preaching of the word. Here's the third and final application. Every believer in Jesus needs to take up the mission to carry the word of Christ to their unsaved neighbors. I'll just close with another quote from Professor Murray. He said this, Although the special office of the preacher must be given due place and esteem, this is not the only aspect of the church's mission. The doctrine of the priesthood of believers received appropriate recognition in the churches of the Reformation, but I fear that in our Reformed churches, the implications have become conspicuous by their neglect and practice. He said, if there's a universal priesthood, there's also a universal prophethood carrying the word out. And wherein lies the mission of the church? It is this evangelizing responsibility of the members of the church we're so liable to neglect. Then Murray said this, No phase of evangelism is more indispensable to the spread of the gospel and the building up of the church. Everyone in Christ has a call, has has the message. And if Christ's mission is to advance in this world, what comes from this pulpit and faithful pulpits around the land has to be carried by the people of God on the mission of Christ to their neighbors, and to the nations. A heart compelled by Christ's mission will have confidence in Christ's message and be committed to Christ's method. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, thank you for your wisdom and your love. Thank you that out of your love you sent your Son to save your enemies. Thank you that in your righteousness and your faithfulness, he is all the sinner needs. Our God, I pray that if there's anyone within the sound of this sermon who as yet has not turned from all other, all their sin, all their own efforts, all other forms of righteousness and trusted Christ, oh, would you give that grace today? to believe in Jesus. And Lord, I pray for those in this congregation who are so faithfully taught, who are so um, effectively given the gospel week after week. I pray that you would deepen the faith, deepen the confidence in your message, deepen the commitment to your methods, and would you impassion your cause in this congregation. For your glory, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.